1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today we're talking to Elena Konis, who is the author of How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall, and Toxic Return of DDT, which is just out from Bold Type Books. Um, Elena is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, in both the Graduate School of Journalism, the Department of History, and the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society. Her first book, Vaccine Nation, received the, received the Arthur J. Vizeltier Award from the American Public Health Association. And I have admired Elena for many, many years, um, going back probably over a decade ago when I TA'd her history of public health class at Emory University. And I'm so excited to be able to sit down and talk to her about her brand new second book. Elena, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Claire. It's such a pleasure to be here and so nice to have a chance to have a conversation with you after all this time. So thank you.
0: Um, Elena, I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about um, yourself and how you came to um, do what you do. (laughs)
1: Sure. There's a very long answer to this question, and I'll, I'll spare you all those details and give you the short version, but I'm a historian of medicine and public health, and I focus mostly on studying the history of public health and medicine in the 20th century U.S., although my approach to history means that it's really hard for me to stay confined to a particular place in a particular time, because as all historians know, everything's connected to everything else. I got into history after working as a journalist covering health and medicine for the Los Angeles Times. And it was while I was writing about contemporary issues in health and medicine that I became interested in the history of kind of you know, to put in a sort of cliche way, how we got here. And that's the question that drives me to do what I do in my current work. I do historical research and a combination of historical and journalistic writing and also teaching. And I am really most interested in issues of great controversy, (laughs) vaccines, pesticides, (laughs) other contested technologies of medicine and health. Um, and that's, I guess, me in a nutshell.
0: You venture very bravely into topics like, like you know, that. I don't, I don't know. I think would be very scary to to be writing about and thinking about and speaking about in our media landscape today, like vaccine skepticism.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. In fact,
0: that is part of how
1: I came to write "How to Sell a Poison" because I was so interested in. Understanding how vaccine skepticism had changed over time, you know, who subscribed to it, who their opponents were, and why on all sides of the equation. And looking at this question historically made me um, realize a couple of things. And one of them was that vaccine skeptics have very understandable reasons um, upholding their views. And one of the things that I was so intrigued by was some of the claims that vaccine skeptics in the 50s, people who were opposing the polio vaccine, made about why they were worried about polio vaccination back then. And one of them put it so succinctly, she said something along the lines of, you know, doctors told us that Coca-Cola was good for us and that cigarettes were good for us. And that, you know, sugar was good for us. She seemed to really like foresee everything. (laughs) She was like, so why should we trust them about, about the polio vaccine? And eventually she added other things to her list, including DDT. They told us to trust them about DDT. Why should we trust them about vaccines? And this particular argument ended up getting picked up by other vaccine skeptics and anti-vaccine individuals and groups and repeated over and over again as the kind of or example of why we're justified. Um, and I'm speaking for them now as a group, but why they felt justified in having worries about vaccines, because scientists had, in their view, led us astray before. They had told us to trust things like DDT, and then look, they had to take back everything that they said, now it's banned and we all accept it as toxic. So I was really interested in how DDT had come to hold this symbolic value for these groups. And the more I kind of looked at the chemical and its history, I realized that it had actually held symbolic value for a whole bunch of different groups. And before I knew it, I had a whole book on the topic on my hands. (laughs) So...
0: So the book does not just operate kind of at the level of rhetoric or narrative. You take the science very seriously and what you get the sense reading the book that you really, you know, your science and you know what you're talking about. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what is DDT and how did it come into use? Absolutely. Yeah, that's
1: a really helpful place to start a conversation about this because at you know, maybe a couple of decades ago, there was a time when DDT would have been a really familiar um, abbreviation and would have held meaning to a lot of people. And today that's no longer the case. But DDT is the the kind of nickname for a chemical that was first identified and synthesized in the 1870s and then further studied in the late 1930s and early 1940s when its insect killing capacities were discovered. So in short, DDT is what we call a pesticide. Um, At the time that it was being tested as an insect killer in the late 30s and 1940s. It was called an insecticide. We didn't really use the term pesticide at the time. And the qualities about DDT that made it so interesting to the scientists who studied it were that it killed insects effectively um, without seeming to pose a risk to other animals or people. So before DDT some of the insect killers that we use were compounds that contain things like lead and arsenic. Everybody knew those were poisonous. They were like fatally poisonous. In fact, there were cases of people dying from eating too many apples in a row, for instance. That wasn't the case with DDT. You could consume a lot of DDT and at most feel, you know, a tingling and heaviness in your limbs, or so the scientists said. The other quality that Made the chemical so interesting to them at that time was that you could spray DDT on a Monday and on Friday it would still be killing insects. And as scientists continued to study the chemical, they realized it didn't just last a week, it lasted weeks and then months. And then it even seemed to persist like to the better part of a year. So you could spray, for instance, a barn with DDT to keep cattle free from flies and a year later, your cattle would still be protected. So in the war, the chemical was really, really attractive for controlling pests that affected troops, um, and specifically that spread diseases. So everything from bedbugs in barracks to malarias in fields of combat. And after the war, it became widely, widely used in agriculture. And I should say just as and aside here that my book really focuses largely almost entirely on the U.S. And so most of my answers today are mostly about the U.S. too. But the chemical was used globally. The Allies credited it with helping them win the war. Um, and it was used all around the world once it was developed after the war for commercial use.
0: Great. I, I that that, that is a very um, thorough and clear introduction to DDT. So thank you for that. Um, I, I thought we could. It might be helpful to kind of give our listeners an overview of the structure of the book. And I also sort of want to take the opportunity here, since in the New Books Network, we do kind of get into the weeds and we get into discussions of craft. I, I wanted to. Um, Once we've done that, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the process of of writing the book. Um, But um, first things first, How to Sell a Poison has a very classic three-act structure. It's the rise, the fall, and the toxic return of DDT. So act one, act two, act three. Can you tell us a little bit about the book structure and how this story of DDT evolved as you did your research? Sure. Yeah.
1: So... At the beginning of our conversation, I mentioned that one of the things that made me interested in writing about DDT was my my kind of gradual recognition of its important symbolism over time. But one of the first things that people come to know about DDT, if they know anything about the chemicals history at all, is that it was so widely used during the Second World War and then afterwards in the consumer market and in agriculture in the U.S., Um, we were spraying like tens of millions of pounds a year and upwards from the forties through the 1950s. And then the second thing that people tend to know about the chemical is that we banned it. (laughs) And we banned it in the U.S. in 1972. Um, Effectively, we changed its registration, which meant that it could no longer be used um, on the scale that it was in agriculture or for the uses that it was in agriculture or in the consumer market. And we left in place an exception for its use in public health emergencies, which in this country um, it has not yet been used for since. So, in short, this is not just a chemical that had symbolic value, as I was talking about before, but it's a chemical about and a technology about we really dramatically about which we really dramatically changed our minds. So I was so struck by the fact that It was something that we believed so fervently and confidently in in the 40s and 50s. And then we fully turned against in the late 1960s and 70s. And the more I came to study the chemical story, I saw that there was a kind of reconsideration of its risks in the late 1990s, early 2000s. So this was a story about how we changed our minds in short, or it seemed like it was going to be a story about that. And it seemed that we like made critical decisions about this chemical at three particular moments, the, the moment of the Second World War and after, the moment of the quote-unquote environmental turn in the 60s and early 70s, and then this moment that I kind of began to think of as the moment of global altruism around the turn of the new millennium. So the story itself, sort of lent itself to a three-act structure. But the more that I studied DDT's history, the more I realized that that structure was helpful narratively, but the story that I was going to fit into that structure was so messy because it wasn't as at all as simple as a really warm, hearty, uncritical welcome of DDT in the 40s and a real simple kind of change of heart in the 1970s. There were so many other things going on behind the scenes that had been left out of DDT's classic story. And so I used the three act structure to give a kind of coherence to what was becoming a much more complicated narrative.
0: But they're sort of uh, DDT critics and DDT boosters all the way along. And they their stories weave together.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly why I found this three act structure so helpful because act one essentially is like the welcome of DDT paired with criticism of it from groups and camps that hadn't gotten a lot of. attention attention in um, both popular and scholarly narratives. For instance, small farmers who, in some cases, literally tried to start movements against DDT in the late 1940s, um, using so many of the same arguments that Rachel Carson would use when she wrote Silent Spring in the early 1960s. Um, And they didn't get very far at all. In fact, they were given attention, but largely dismissed and eventually ended up giving giving up on their movement. The United Farm Workers were another group who kind of took up the, the cause of popularizing and communicating DDT's harms, again, earlier than the environmental movement. So in Act 1, it's the story of DDT's welcome, and it's simultaneously the story of the individuals and groups who tried to publicize and spread the word about and even further understand DDT's harms. In Act 2, when the environmental movement of the late 60s and early 70s kind of takes up DDT as this signal cause for their movement, what I discovered was that Behind the scenes, DDT was losing favor both among chemical companies, especially the big, big players, and among within the tobacco industry, which had its own reasons for wanting to see DDT banned. Um, to make a very long story short, the tobacco industry saw that DDT was going to be regulated more strictly in European nations starting in the late 1960s in ways that were going to um, close off some of its European markets, some of its biggest markets for tobacco exports. And so they began pressuring U.S. growers and U.S. regulators to curb the use of DDT. And in fact, the USDA issued a, a ban of DDT on tobacco before the Environmental Protection Agency ruled in favor of a full ban on DDT, um, which they did in 1972. We tell the story of DDT's ban as if this is a victory that belongs to the environmental movement. But the more that I studied this chemical's history, the more that I saw that it probably would have been Close to impossible for that ban to go through if these other powerful industries hadn't already decided that they needed DDT out of the way for their very own reasons.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a complicated story, but you you make it so lucid and so clear, and and you sort of carry us along with with the. Um, the reader kind of gets carried along with the the story of, of this um, chemical as it unfolds. Um, I um, wanted to to talk a little bit more about craft, um, and wondered if you could talk. To, your, your your first award winning book, Vaccine Nation, was based on your dissertation um, and, um, was widely read, but maybe more a traditional academic book. I, I wanted, wondered if you could talk a little bit about the process of, um, of writing the second book and how was it different from the sort of turning a dissertation into the book that, um, we talk about a lot on new books network.
1: Oh, so different! And in fact, this book went through several iterations before it became the more narrative-driven book <laughs> that I ultimately handed in to my publisher. I, when I wrote "Vaccine Nation," I really wanted to understand vaccine skepticism, as I mentioned before, and I wanted to give it fair treatment. I wanted to approach it as something to be understood. um, And I don't want to say respected, but respected in as much as one would respect any fellow human being's ideas as a way of trying to understand who they are and what they care about in this world. And after that book was published, I, the its reception made me realize that it was sort of like a Rorschach blot, like people who were pro-vaccine read it as a pro-vaccine book, people who were um, more closer to the anti-vaccine camp read it in their own ways. In, in short, people sort of saw in it what they wanted to see in it. And I felt a little bit let down that while I had been trying to treat all people with equal fairness, I somehow had fallen short of that goal. So in writing about DDT, I was taking up something that was kind of just as contested in its own time. It's kind of probably close to impossible to imagine now, but to go back to say the early 1970s or the late 1960s, for instance, and people felt as strongly you know, in favor or against DDT as some people feel about vaccines or the COVID vaccine today. And what I also realized was that it wasn't so simple that like the pro DDT people were right, or the anti DDT people were right, that, you know, the way we understood that question was dependent on the moment in time that you were listening to all the arguments and who your values aligned with at that particular moment. So the story of DDT became for me personally, another opportunity to try to treat historical actors with really different ideas about science um, with equivalent kind of consideration. And so I set out to write this book by attempting to find characters who represented all different kinds of views about science and the science of DDT and who represented all different kinds of identities because oftentimes their identities and their views were really, really tightly linked, if not always. And I wanted to be sure to put, for instance, the small farmer on equal footing with the state health officer investigating that farmer's claims and on down the line. And narrative writing gave me a way to do that if I could kind of approach each person as a character and try to understand a little bit about them as people, that was a starting point for also treating their ideas and beliefs equivalently to. So again, to come back to the question that you asked, this whole book was so different because I kind of put the argument in the back seat and put the characters in the front seat. I still wanted to tell a story about science denial and who were the people and actors who um, rejected certain scientific ideas and arguments at different moments in time and why did they do so. But I didn't want to put that rejection at the front. I wanted to put the people at the front, hopefully as a way of shedding more light on what allows, um, you know, vaccine—sorry, uh, not vaccine, but science skeptical ideas—to gain footing and and then spread, and the answer was so much more complicated than I expected. Um, I guess just in brief, one of the things that I oh well, I can describe maybe three patterns that I noticed. One was that. Oftentimes when lay people were asking for more information about a scientific question, if they were members of minority or oppressed groups, their identities were usually used as ways of dismissing or belittling their ideas. Um, So if they were women or if they were Black or if they were um, a a farm laborer who hadn't gotten a, a... a school education, a formal education, all of those aspects of their identity were used as ways of explaining why they either didn't believe in science or um, didn't, quote unquote, understand scientific issues. The other thing that I found was that, not surprisingly, um, industries- deliberately muddled and messed with public understanding of science to protect their own bottom line. And this is everything from the chemical industry trying to protect its own products from further regulation in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and on down the line, to completely, seemingly unrelated industries like the tobacco industry, trying to shape the public's opinion on DDT in fast forward the 1990s and early 2000s, because in their view, it was kind of a morality tale about why government regulation sometimes went too far. What they saw in the DDT story was an example of Western industrial nations leading a global trend for DDT bans that left poor nations at risk of malaria. And for the tobacco industry, this was a story that kind of could show the world why Western regulation, Western-led health regulation shouldn't be trusted because it only serves um, their own interests and not the interests of others. This was just a means of distracting people's attention away from the harms of tobacco um, and undermining support for regulation generally. So we have industry deliberately messing with the public's understanding of science. And then the third kind of big example that I came away from this whole study with was individual experts, um, often but not always academics who hold ideas or publish research favorable to industry and either do the work themselves of publicizing their ideas um, and or get courted and elevated by industry because industry sees them as helpful allies um, who they don't have to pay (laughs) um, to spread their views but whose views serve industrial interests nonetheless. So a complicated kind of story about the forces creating and promoting science denial, which essentially I hope to just illustrate through the use of good old-fashioned characters who always drive these narratives no matter what.
0: Well, one of the historical actors who's really at the heart of this book, um, and I I feel we should devote some time to talking about, is um, Clyde Foster, who's the mayor of the town, Triana, Alabama and i wondered if you could um he he gets the sort of concluding words of of the whole book and um the story of this town sort of unfolds over the course of the book and i wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about who this who this person was and um and what happened to the town of Tra- of triana if i'm saying that right
1: yeah no thanks i it took me a while to learn how to say it, Triana, um, Alabama, and yeah, and I I came across Triana's quote unquote DDT problem, and I put that in quotes because this was uh, an actual headline in a couple of different magazine and newspaper articles from the time. Just by happenstance, I was in the archives of the CDC in Atlanta, and I had come across one of these articles about. DDT poisoning, uh, this town in northeastern Alabama that was so egregious that the CDC, the EPA, and the TVA all descended upon this town to kind of investigate how the poisoning had happened and to ameliorate its effects. And I was surprised because I had never heard of this before. Um, And Once I came across the first article, I did some clip searches and found plenty of other coverage about it. And it told the story of this small town of less than a thousand people, uh, 98, the population of the town at the time was 98% black. This was um, just outside of Huntsville. And in the late 1970s, the town's mayor was A man named Clyde Foster, who had moved to Triana a little less than two decades earlier with his wife, whose family was from there. And when he moved there, he had a a job at the nearby Marshall um, uh, Space Center, which was a little bit closer to Huntsville. And he was working there as a computer analyst, but living in Triana. And Triana was a town that was so stricken at the time with poverty that it had no running water, it had no electricity, it had no mayor, no police chief. And Foster, as a a young man just starting out in his career and just starting his family, had heard all of these stories from his wife's family about how Triana used to be this wonderful thriving port town. And so he kind of began doing his own research on it, ended up digging Triana's charter out of the state archives, and then ended up finding a judge who reinstated the charter, putting Triana essentially back on the map. And the judge in the process decided to name Clyde Foster mayor. So Clyde Foster becomes mayor of this town that he puts on the map by this time. It's the early 1960s. And all the while, he ends up working at the Space Flight Center, which then becomes part of NASA. Um, He's an analyst who ends up doing calculations that help us send rocket ships to the moon. And he's so struck by the disparity between what the nation's science and technology is capable of and the conditions in his town that he makes it his personal project to bring Triana into the 20th century, bring in a pump house for water, bring plumbed running water to all the households, bring in jobs, training programs, electricity, you know, create a city hall, etc. And You know, Foster has been at this project for, again, almost two decades when one day he's at work and he comes across an article that mentions that the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, um, has detected really high levels of the pesticide DDT in fish in the Tennessee River, the Tennessee River. Um, runs right past the town of Triana. Triana sits right essentially on its banks. And when Foster reads this, he realizes that this isn't just some abstract measurement, because in his town, so many people are still so poor that they eat fish for multiple meals a week. And even if they aren't poor, it's such an ingrained tradition to fish in the river and eat the fish that he quickly realizes that the people in his town have been consuming high levels of DDT for a very long time, and they themselves must have high levels of the chemical in their bodies. This is the late 1970s when he reads this article. And DDT had been banned in 1972. So this banned chemical is in his town's food supply, in their bodies, and he springs into action. As a federal employee, he, and as a mayor, and as just a remarkable character, within a week, he has convinced folks from the Centers for Disease Control, the TVA, and the EPA to all come to Triana to investigate um, exactly how much DDT is in not only the fish, but also people's bodies, and how they can be protected from it and what it's doing to them. This begins a story that then unfolds over so many decades, and to some extent, it's still unfolding today, but in a a largely forgotten way, to condense it down to its kind of main elements The federal agencies are all incredibly responsive to Foster and his requests, but the company that had manufactured DDT on land leased by the U.S. Army then also ends up coming under scrutiny and ends up being sued, not just by Foster and his town, but also by um, the state of Alabama and also the US government. So this suit results in a number of outcomes, including a massive $24 million settlement for the town of Triana, um, a massive cleanup of the site, which the EPA oversees, and also medical studies of the people who had been contaminated by the DDT and all of these things under, unfold on different time frames the settlement is paid out by the by the mid to late 80s all the settlement funds are paid out A medical fund is created, and some studies of the people of Triana are overtaken. And for reasons that I go into in great length in the book, um, these studies are actually still just being published literally today. And the last piece of it, the environmental cleanup of the site, ends up being completed by the late 80s, early 90s, but monitoring of the site has been continuing and is still continuing and has found that while DDT levels have gone down in most of the target species of fish, um, there's still one that hasn't met the uh, aimed for levels of DDT. And in the most recent EPA report on the levels of DDT, in the fish, I found this footnote that was just absolutely remarkable that that said essentially while cleanup levels had brought DDT down to the levels that were presumed to be safe in the early 1980s when the EPA created this cleanup plan, today those levels may not be low enough to protect human health simply because we know more about DDT's Um, possibility to affect health over the long term. So the real takeaway for me of the story of Triana is that here, in short, is an example, first of all, of just egregious environmental racism. Um, And second of all, it's an example of the fact that despite that, here was a town that pretty much had every resource at its disposal, that Uh, just had just about everything go right, a massive corporate settlement, the attention of all these federal agencies, cleanups, studies, and the like. And yet, the DDT is still there. The levels may not be low enough by today's standards to be proven safe. And in short, DDT is perhaps still causing environmental and perhaps physiological changes um, that could never have been anticipated when it was first manufactured, when it was released into the environment, or even when it was targeted for cleanup at this site. In other words, the problems continue long after we think we've solved them, and sometimes even as we think we are solving them.
0: I want to ask about one more um, historical actor or sort of important character in the book before we get to our our kind of wrap-up questions. And that is Rachel Carson, who of course wrote the very famous 1962 book, Silent Spring. She um, makes an appearance in How to Sell a Poison, and I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about your treatment of Rachel Carson and your sort of um, assessment of Carson's legacy.
1: Let me say a couple of things in answer to this question. Approaching a book about Rachel Carson is incredibly daunting because so much has been written about Rachel Carson that it feels almost impossible to say something new. At the same time, I started to feel that her role in DDT's history and in the histories that we tell about environmentalism had been sort of... Overdetermined to an extent that Carson was dependent, as, as I think we all know, she was dependent on so many other figures as she wrote her book. And what she did in writing Silent Spring was elevate the work of scientists, health officials, um, farm organizers, and others who had been making arguments about pesticides for years. And, One of the things that struck me as I looked more closely, not just at Silent Spring, but at Carson's work for the book and her correspondence with people about the book was that some of the people that she talked to and interviewed were people who were actually struggling to get attention for their views in their own time. And she had this remarkable ability to give their work and their views a platform. Among these people, there are several that i kind of introduces characters in the book, including Irma West, who was a health official for the um, California Health Department, Morton Biskind, a physician in New York City who became convinced of TDT's harms really early on in the game in the late 1940s. And someone named Marjorie Spock, Benjamin Spock, the pediatrician Benjamin Spock's sister, who was a biodynamic and organic farmer in the 1950s, um, who had tried to sue her county um, and the USDA to stop spraying DDT on her property because she wanted to farm organically. Um, She lost in court, but amassed so much scientific information and ended up feeding it to Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson heard about her suit. Um, And in many ways, this is where silent spring began with the materials that Marjorie Spock had collected. So I was interested in putting Carson into this broader context in which she belonged and in which I think she saw herself belonging. But I also on the other side of the story of Silent Spring wanted to put Carson in a different kind of context. Some of the environmental activists and advocates that I spoke to insisted that they had never even read Silent Spring when they decided to start um, mobilizing against DDT. And then I think one of the other things that struck me was that... You know, Carson had, um, she was more circumspect about pesticides than I think most simple narratives give her credit for. I mean, she saw that they had a role to play, and she simply wanted us to move further from our dependence and to more carefully consider the long term effects of the volume that we were using. We never did that. Our response to Silent Spring was effectively to ban the easiest to ban of the quote unquote bad actors. But our pesticide use increased um, the kinds of pesticides that we used still posed harms only on a different timescale and to different subjects both animal and human and so i think her legacy is a really complicated one and it's it's difficult to say that because she has such a revered position in human history um deserved in so many ways but oversimplified in so many ways too
0: I want to ask one more question before we get to our traditional New Books Network um, closing question. And and that is to to bring you back to the point you made before about, now the book is very narrative and maybe the argument takes a, a backseat to the the narrative, as you said, but there is an argument there and it is a broader argument about science communication. And I wondered if you could Tell us a little bit about what the history, or, or um, talk a little bit about what the history of DDT tells us about the way that scientific knowledge is created and understood. Sure. This is such a good
1: question. And this is, again, one of the main overarching objectives of the book that I wanted to communicate through its characters. I think that today we have gotten to a point where. Um, Again, to sort of generalize, we look to science for firm, unyielding, concrete answers. And we also tend to treat science as a bit of a morality. If scientific evidence says it is so, it is so. And so we must act. Um, This stance, I think, contributes to many of the political problems that we're grappling with right now as a nation. But it also means that we've forgotten something very fundamental about science. Um, Actually, two things. One is that it's a process. And two, it's a process carried out by humans, a process for producing knowledge, for understanding the world in which we live in, carried out by humans who make errors, hold prejudices and biases and beliefs that cloud their ability or shape their ability to interpret the knowledge that they produce or receive through um, the process of scientific inquiry. So what was so kind of fascinating to me about the story of DDT was that there are so many characters who were so convinced that their view of the science was right. And in so many instances, that view and that conviction rested entirely upon their ability to either close off or ignore other scientific knowledge or to hold up that view and support it with kind of prejudicial ideas about fellow human beings. This is a kind of messy (laughs) way of saying that, you know, a male, white male toxicologist in the 1950s who was presented with either evidence about DDT's harms on a cotton farm in Mississippi or complaints about DDT's harms by white farmers owning small farms in South Georgia would be able to look at the first instance and say these people just need more training they don't know how to use it quote unquote um, they don't know how to use pesticides safely and so any harm is a result of user error it's not a result of the technology and in the other instance you know with small farmers in particular, those who were female, the common dismissal that I came across was, this is hysteria, it's all in their heads, DDT is safe, and these harms are all imaginary. And those are in a, both egregious but not unusual examples of the ways in which our own scientific experts allowed their allegiance to certain scientific processes and also their own human biases to shape how they talked about science and how they communicated it to both their colleagues and the public. That's a a, not very neat answer <laughs> to the question of what the argument um, is. But the argument essentially in a sentence is that science is essentially a place in which we do battle over things like race and class and gender and the economy and and cloak these battles in the language of science, say that they're about science when in fact they're about so many other more complicated issues.
0: Well, that comes through loud and clear in the book, and that's very well said. And that, Elena, brings us to our traditional New Books Network interview final question, and that is: you must be exhausted finishing this book and a global pandemic <laughs> and um, everything at, you, you know, teaching and everything else you have going on. But um, but but we look forward and to to what's next, and are wondering what. What are, what are you planning next? What are you working on now? <laughs> I'm working on a couple of things. Um,
1: I'm working on some small projects on conservative think tanks and science communication, another small project on uh, personal belief exemptions to vaccination, also a global history of measles <laughs> because I think we're not done with that disease. So those three projects will probably keep me busy for the next couple of years. <laughs>
0: The last one doesn't sound small.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. That one's not a small one. <laughs> that one's not a small one. But it should be a really, really interesting one. I mean, without COVID, I feel like we'd still be talking about measles. So I think that measles moment is still ahead of us. It's it's coming back.
0: Well, Alina, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today and for your wonderful work. Um, and I wish you good luck with each of those three projects and can't wait to read more about them. Thank you so much, Claire. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you.
1: Thanks again.